Hi all. In the last week, Singapore has seen a massive explosion of COVID-19 cases concentrated in the dormitories of low-wage migrant workers. The coronavirus is running wild through the worker dormitories and thousands of migrant workers are ill. This has drawn a huge amount of attention on the lives of low-wage migrant workers in Singapore. And this actually is not a new problem. The dormitories have seen outbreaks of disease like measles in the past due to unsanitary, crowded and poorly ventilated conditions. NGOs, civil society organizations and other activists have been trying to draw attention to this and broader issues in the sector for years, including in particular regulations and an incentive structure which incentivize the exploitation of workers, leading to systematic abuse throughout the majority of the industry. However, these concerns were previously swept under the carpet for decades, until the coronavirus revealed the ugly truth about how we are treating our guest workers. I was privileged to speak to Zakir Hussein Kokan from Bangladesh, who is in hospital right now with COVID-19. Zakir was a freelance journalist in Dhaka. In 2003, he left his family behind to come and work in Singapore. Today, he works in construction, but his talent with words continues to shine. In 2014, Zakir won first prize at the first ever Migrant Workers Poetry Competition and then followed it up again by winning in 2015, following which he wasn't allowed to enter again to give someone else a chance to win it. Around 2017, he started Migrant Writers of Singapore, an organization that aims to build bridges through the shared love of literature. I spoke with Zakir along with two Singaporeans who are volunteering with him Jay and Michelle, about their work with migrant writers of Singapore and other initiatives, including aid to workers in the ongoing crisis. Zakir also told us about his own history, how he came to be in Singapore, and his experience here in the past 17 years as a migrant worker. We also talked about systemic and structural issues, the fear of reprisals that leads to self-censorship among migrant workers and Singaporeans, the lack of media coverage and visibility on migrant workers, the importance of civil society, and how things might be able to improve in the future. As always, apologies for the sound quality. We are living the lockdown life. Zakir, why don't we, we start with you. Why don't you tell us a bit about yourself, uh, about your story, about migrant writers of Singapore, and um, all that you're trying to achieve. Hello, everyone. I came in Singapore as a migrant worker in 2003. From 2004, I started one book year for migrant workers. In 2014, when I attend a poetry competition and I own my poetry pocket to own, that time I received some question from the audience that how could migrant workers write very deep and meaningful poem like pocket two. So this actually catch, uh, catch me that we have to do something uh, can make a breeze with migrant and local by poetry. Uh, so from that idea, actually, I start uh, uh, migrant writer of Singapore and also uh, one that one book. Migrant writer of, from the migrant writer of Singapore, we do poetry reading session every month for Sunday, where migrant and local poets they come together. And from that activity, actually, we publish one anthology. That anthology published from Math Fresh anthology name is uh, Call and Response. Uh, thirty-two migrant and thirty-two local poets they write poem uh, Call and Response way. So this way, actually, we try to make a good bonding. We use uh, poetry. We use a storytelling session. We have one storytelling session. We give this session name Open Borders. Also, we're doing blood donation drive from the migrant writer of Singapore. So this way, actually, 
photography, poetry, storytelling, and photo work, blood donation drive. This way we try to make a good bonding with local and migrant. Because we find out that we don't have much relation, but we're living in the same society in Singapore. Uh, like now we have one page, that page name is Daily Life in COVID-19. This page is running by uh, Michelle and uh, Jay. Uh, Michelle is uh, Michelle, yeah, and uh, Jay, they are actually backbone of our activity. Uh, and from there, we're doing a lot of acti uh, activity and they're helping all the emails and response of the locals and other who are email us. Jai and uh, Michelle actually helping uh, our community a uh, very different way and a very good way. If they no help, we cannot actually do so many things in the same time. Well, thanks, Sakir. Uh, so, Jay and Michelle, uh, would you like to talk a bit about yourselves and how you got involved in Migrant Writers of Singapore? I understand you're both still students right now? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Michelle, would you like to start? Um, so how I knew Zakir was that uh, in 2017, I was writing for TEDx Singapore and um, and I was supposed to cover about like his dreams and uh, aspirations for the future. So during that time, he told me about how he wanted to do one back one book, how he wanted to write a poetry anthology between like migrants and locals, as well as ha having a carnival of poetry. So over this um, four, like three years, he has completed each and every one of them. Um, wow. Yeah, so that, like, even though the chapter isn't published yet, I had to change it over and over again because he has been so um, proactive in accomplishing his dreams. And, yeah, so since then, we have been helping him. And along the way, we met Jay because um, uh, from UNUS, he has been helping us with open borders. So just to clarify for our listeners, what language are these books in? For call and response, it's in um, English, but then for migrant tales, where it um, there are a lot of uh, Bengali poets who are featured there. Yeah, it's in Beng uh, Bengali. Yeah. Cool. And and where where can uh, our listeners get these books? Um, at any bookstore or online? Yeah, this can get from online. Uh, uh, book actually, and a city book room. Also, uh, Kenokunia, they can buy from Kenokunia. Awesome. We'll, we'll include links in the show description later. So, uh, Jay, let's come to you. Uh, how did you get involved in Migrant Writers of Singapore? Right. So, um, I first got to know Zakia through like um, this event called Conversations in Singapore History. Um, I was uh, like a satellite contact. Like, I had a friend in the UK who was wanting to do something related to migrant workers. And so she got in touch with me, and then I got in touch with Zakia, and that was how I first got to know him. However, then, super coincidentally, Zakia happened to send an email to UNUS asking about um, a collaboration with Open Borders, and it just so happened that the professor that he emailed knew that I was also involved in migrant worker issues and sent the email to me. So then, for a second time, Zakia and I just happened to meet all of a sudden, all over again, and then that was when I really got more heavily involved in the events that Migrant Rights of Singapore runs. Awesome. I think it's incredibly important. We often forget about our common and shared humanity and poetry and the arts is one way that we can realize just how much um, you know shared humanity we all have. Uh, Zakir, let's come back to you. And uh, you know, speaking of, of uh, this fragile existence we call life, I, I have to ask how you're feeling. Are you, are you fully recovered or mostly recovered from COVID-19? Uh, I am improving uh, compared to uh, last week when I uh, come in hospital. 
So now I know have a fever, but I still have body pain and other symptoms still have. Uh, here doctor and nurse is very good, they take care of me. So hopefully very soon I can recover. Okay, I'm glad to hear that. Uh, how, how long have you been in hospital exactly? You said last week, so it's been about what, seven, ten days? Uh, I think, yeah, almost there. Yeah, I came here uh, 16 April. Okay, and, and for our listeners, today is Saturday, 25th April, so it's been nine days. Zakir, if, if, if I can ask a bit about yourself and, and, your, uh, and your, you know, the life. You came here in 2003, which, I mean, 17 years is a long, long time to live in another country. And, you know, I, I would know I went to the UK in 2002 and... Uh, I, I've spent so much time coming back to Singapore. I really miss home. Uh, but for you, I mean, I imagine you you ha probably haven't gone home very often in the past 17 years. Um, could you maybe tell us a bit about why you chose to come here and, um, you know, switch careers from being a freelance journalist to working in the construction industry and how you ended up in Singapore of all places? Oh, well, uh, actually, that was one... Uh uh accident i can say one accident because so who bring me in singapore he is uh, my friend but he not mentioned me or he not open me that i am here for doing the migrant workers uh, kind of job i paid that time ten thousand singapore dollar in 2003 huge amount with uh, my father sell land and uh, we take borrow from uh, from bank and other uh, neighbor and family people then we put all the money for uh, agency, and I, when I come here, I found that I am the uh, HDB cleaner. That time, the, my first job was in Chua Chukang, I remember. Uh, six uh, uh, six uh, HDB block uh, uh, was under me. They said, these six block you have to sweep every day morning and afternoon. So that was very shocked in mentally, and uh, uh, yeah. And all the uh, dreams and everything is broken, uh, how I find myself. But if I go back to my country that time, uh, how I pay back from whose I take loan. For this reason, I continue that job till today also. Yeah, I miss my country. And uh, every two years, uh, I meet my wife, my uh, uh, mother and my family and my son. I have one son, Jarif. He is now uh, nine years plus. Yeah, this is how actually I start. That is one mistake uh, for my side. Uh, and continue I doing here. But luckily now I am promoted. My present company, Sandri Woodcraft, they are so kind to me and they uh, appreciate my hard work, uh, how I work for my company. Uh, so they promote me as a quality controller in a project. Uh, in the project. Now, uh, just now I complete uh, Jewel project. I was the quality controller of Jewel Changi from my company. Oh, wow. It looks like you did a really good job there. It looks very beautiful. Um, can I just pick up on one thing that you, you said? Um, so you, you went into debt and paid 10,000 US dollars to come to Singapore. But when you got here, you were told you were going to be a cleaner, which is not what you expected. Uh, so what, what did you expect? when you, you know, went into so much debt to come here? Actually, I expect a good job, an official kind of job, because uh, when I come here in 2003, the same year, I just complete my graduation from National University of Bangladesh. So as I uh, come out from uni, a student, I expect that 
should I get a good job, official kind of job? Because uh, about Singapore in my country, every people know that this is the dream country. So uh, when my friend offered me job in Singapore, then I also thinking should be job will be as per my level uh, as a university student who come out as a graduation, uh, complete graduation. So I thinking that kind of job, but when I come here, uh, I come here and I find that I am the cleaner of his DB block. That was really very shocked. I could not sleep so many nights on that time. Right. So, so basically, you're, uh, you know, the the way it's. I mean, the listening to you, it's like I I if I just finished university and I hear that hey, there's plenty of good jobs in London, say, and I just need to pay ten thousand dollars to get there, and I can get a fantastic job and be an expert and. Uh, commensurate in my level of education, and I get there, and I find that I am cleaning the council estates, which is is a is a massive bait and switch. But you don't have any recourse then because you're already in debt. And was there a signed contract, or was there a, any sort of legal document that you could turn to and say, "Hey, this is what I was promised, and instead, this is what I I got." No, do we no have this because. Uh... Uh, in 2003, they are no have the proper uh, documentation way. Just they send us uh, some bond paper and uh, some uh, what uh, air ticket. Then we come here. Then we meet company. Uh, this way actually they arrange on that uh, that time. That time was this arrangement was so messy. Uh, but when I come here and when I talk to my company boss. Uh, that uh, actually uh, I am not expect this kind of job. Then la- they laugh to me. <laughs> they laugh to me. They say you have to continue these things. No choice. In some ways, of course, uh, for many of us Singaporeans, this is, is uh, you know it's a sort of echo of our own past because many of our ancestors came here as uh, debt bonded coolie labor, and then ended up staying on. And and yet today, I think most people don't recognize the kind of debt bondage that, uh, you know, many of our migrant workers enter into. Um, but you seem to have done pretty well for yourself then, because my understanding is most migrant workers don't last more than uh, a year or, or five years at the most, but you've been here 17 years. And is, is there something in particular that, um, you know, you'd say is is the key to your longevity? Actually, uh, yeah. In 17 years, I work a uh, total four company. Uh, people receive me. Uh, I find out people receive me very well, uh, like my colleague, which company I work. They actually help me to uh, learn computer skill. That actually helped me become a two days my position. So I, I received so many help, uh, helping hand. From the from the local side and my colleagues, I thankful to them. Another things I want to share with you: when I facing this kind of mental uh, torturing or mental uh, hallucination uh, time, that time actually I try to involve with my literature. Uh, I find out that that will be help me to reduce my stress. So I try to reach more, and uh, later I encourage uh, my surrounding other people. Uh, read more book. Why? Uh, because I keep my passion with me. Uh, so this way, actually, all the passion uh, I uh, keep and I try to split with my migrant community, migrant brothers. 
we want to show that domestic helper or migrant worker also have talent, different kind of passion. You guys are uh, bringing, you know, Michelle and Jay bringing you back into the conversation. You guys are working with a lot of um, migrant workers right now who are isolated in their dormitories. And, you know, I can just imagine they must be extremely fearful of getting uh, sick. It's incredibly difficult to be isolated in a, in a dormitory for, for days at a time. So uh, I understand you guys are, are working with them to remotely to help them with uh, their mental health. Okay, so for the mental health, like Zakir, Zakir previously when he was still in the dormitory, he would go room to room while, while wearing a mask and keeping a safe distance. He would be talking to them about uh, how to manage their emotions during this time period. But at the same time, because they are always talking with their... Um, they are now isolated and staying with their roommates for much of their time. And it's probably like 12 people in the room. So that, that there's rising tensions among the roommates uh, themselves. Like Zakir said that there was people fighting, um, like oh, almost, yeah. almost breaking out in a fight because they are they are they have to face each other for a very long for, for a long time. Whereas like in the past they would be going out to work and only coming coming back and maybe just falling asleep for a few hours. So for that, uh, we have collated a number of questions because um, firstly, the workers are worried about um, what COVID-19 is. Some of them don't understand what's happening. And um, the second part is the mental health issues because um, we, not only, we not only focus on construction workers, but also foreign domestic helpers, and they have a different set of problems. Because for, for foreign domestic helpers, um, they are not, they, now, now that they have to stay at home, um, there's a chance, a, a high chance that they are like uh, exploited and not able to have any off days or rest days. And because of that, a lot of them are quite mentally strained. And they don't, especially those who don't have their own rooms, they will be, maybe if they are sleeping like, uh, in, a, like in the kitchen or something like that, um, yeah, they don't have their own space. And then uh, I also heard from uh, my foreign domestic helper friend, like she said that um, she would be working until 3 a.m. and then waking up at 7 a.m., that kind of thing. And because uh, it's a four-story house that she has to clean and everyone has meals at different times, that kind of thing. Yeah, so she she's really, really tired and strained. But she's still helping us with our activities and... Um, uh, helping us interview people if we are if 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 needed and collecting stories that kind of thing. Yeah. yeah. So um, I guess building off Michelle, like one of the things that we are doing now is we've set up a Facebook page um called Daily Life in COVID nineteen, and inside there is um it's kind of just a group for people to express themselves creatively. What we have every day is that we have different prompts that we try to engage them with. For example, we have prompts that ask them like how are you feeling, or perhaps like what are your wishes for today. Uh, what are your emotions about the lockdown? And what we do is that we have a team of translators that translate it into um, Tagalog, Bahasa Indonesia, and Bengali. And in this way, we try to engage with more people who might not be so comfortable, perhaps expressing themselves in English. So through this, uh, we try to engage with the foreign domestic workers, with the migrant workers, in a way that hopefully helps them express themselves to, I guess, kind of give some alleviation in terms of mental health. However, at the same time, we also have a few other activities in the page we are currently trying to set up a regular stream of like mental health resources. For that, we currently have an existing team, but it's still being um, formulated. We are trying to figure out how to most effectively move it forward. And we also have photo prompts where perhaps like 
one um, migrant photographer takes a picture and then we invite someone else to react to the photo online so that there is also a collaborative element. It's not just about expressing oneself, but also kind of finding community online to kind of just feel that you're not really alone in expressing yourself. I think a feeling of solidarity, a feeling of community is something that is really, really very hard to cultivate, especially when you're all far apart. So um, through this group, we are trying to help that a little bit more as well. Yeah. So listening to you guys um, and how much you're doing just within your communities up here and with volunteers and, um, you know, just with um, the sort of initiatives that, that you've got, Michelle and Jay, uh, I'm reminded of the last time a New Narrative had a podcast uh, with people from TWC2 and Home where they talked about how there's a lot of these wonderful initiatives and people really do care, but the bigger problem is systemic and has to do with government policy, uh, with exploitation of workers, with the lack of, of labor rights, or the more importantly, the lack of enforcement of existing labor rights and um, the, the sort of incentive structure around the whole industry that incentivizes exploitation and abuse. So what Deborah and Steph described to them was um, there are lots of things being done on the ground by individuals, but ultimately things cannot improve until the, the broader system changes. Uh, but at the same time, there's a lot of discouragement, like Steph talked about uh, talking to students who are specifically told not to criticize government policy. Right. So what can be done? What can we do? And how should things change if, if we want to uh, treat um, you know, our migrant workers, brothers and sisters as human beings with full human rights and labor rights? Well, I agree that systemic issues are actually um, what we need to address because um, in the past, we were always toying with the. I mean, we were always trying to balance the idea between like whether we want to ensure that uh, there can be a positive view of the migrants, um, but at the same time, we don't want to distract uh, the conversation from like their their usual the the problems that they are facing. So we have always been trying to strike a balance, though. Um, we are not sure whether that is good enough. And in the past, I guess like uh, most of our migrant friends were um, engaging in more self-censorship. So their poems would definitely not be about uh, the mistreatment that they face. It's always about more abstract ideas about like love or uh, family, that kind of thing. But recently, I guess they are more able to, uh, willing to engage in this kind of issues and not only this kind of issues like they even write about refugee crisis like overseas and whatever and learn how to and they are trying to empathize with other people even though they are also uh, suffering their situation another thing is that the media tends to focus on how uh, for example like this our, our initiatives are uh, migrant-led whereas uh, for us we would think that um, it's more of a bond between migrants and locals and that we should be forging our future hand in hand. Um, and our recommendation uh, on my part is that the dorm owners and the employers need to ha uh, step up a lot more. So for example, like for Zakir's dormitory, um, and, and, and that's not only for his dormitory because they are also in charge of Cochrane Lodge 1, Cochrane Lodge 2, and if I'm not wrong, Crunchy Lodge. Um, 
and they they have systemic problems like issues with cleanliness and um also how um they previously did not continue temperature taking for the workers at least for Zakir's uh dormitory I'm not sure if I can say this but um yeah so they only continue they only did it for one week and then after that it was just like the markers were just left there or like there's yellow tape for social distancing but it's not observed that kind of thing and um yeah because the 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 dormitory operators and the employers are not actively participating or giving masks to the workers it's a bit confusing uh i think there 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 are a lot of issues at hand because there's a lack of communication and a lack of participation from all parties mm-hmm. okay uh, i guess I'll, I'll just add on a few more thoughts um i think the the first thing that I'd like to acknowledge is that like surely I, I definitely agree with um what TWC2 and home are recommending about the whole idea of systemic problems. However at the same time I think there's also a very deep cultural problem that maybe can be traced back to maybe issues like visibility. Like for example I feel that because like migrant workers are really just not physically visible in the Singaporean's imagination, like literally the dorms are located extremely far away. Um in terms of social activities, in terms of what they do for their pastimes, they are just not visible. And I think that really affects how we view them as belonging into society. So something that I'll really recommend, and um, I think it's actually somewhat paradoxically being done now because of the whole social, social, distancing, social distancing thing, is to kind of make them more visible in civil society, whether it is it like being through like um, making housing more intertwined. I'm sure that's a really deep um, and thorny issue, but I think something like that really goes a long way, especially when it comes to seeing people as physically belonging close to each other. Um, the second thing I'll suggest is that I think for the first time now, we are seeing a very, very explicit partnership with like civil society. So for example, what I mean is we see um, MOM working very, very closely with the Migrant Coalition and with a few other groups as well. And I think this is really one of the first few times that I've actually seen such a close partnership happening and really shows us what's possible when like civil society and um, the government really comes together and tries to solve problems. At the same time, I think like it's also important to recognize that the NGOs are not the government. So the NGO can do things like filling up gaps really quickly. They can respond to on-the-ground needs extremely quickly. What the government can do is that they can set long-term directions and then make sure that resources are directed like properly and effectively into necessary places. But now what we see at the same time is a lot of teething problems. What I mean is that, for example, maybe like um, MWC wants to kind of consolidate all the logistics and then send it out. But at the same time, we also see that because they're doing that, sometimes some dorms that really need resources do not get them. So for example, maybe we hear Zakia's friends saying that, oh, my dorms are not receiving resources. And that's something that the NGOs, the underground initiatives can really help to plug those gaps. But at the same time, now there's an information like asymmetry. In, like the government does know some stuff, the NGOs know some stuff, but not everyone knows everything. So that's a current gap, but I think like the way it's going now is one really positive direction and something that hopefully persists even after the crisis, that, that this partnership still continues so that there is more clear, transparent communication. And I think the third thing that I want to suggest is, um, I think in terms of media coverage, I think media coverage can also be more nuanced, but I'm not really sure how much people want nuanced discussion in the media, but, but that's another topic. But for example, what I mean is that right now, like we see a lot of um, articles about Singaporeans doing good. We see a lot of articles about migrants suffering in the dormitories. But then we don't really hear many stories, for example, of employers who are doing as much as they can 
to kind of help the situation on the ground. And what that results in is that there's a lot of vilification, a lot of um, like villainization of like the employers. And this might actually have like a double effect in the sense that employers who are trying their best to do things for their employees in the end do not get recognized. And the solutions that they are implementing, for example, maybe some employers that I know of, they've actually tried to implement safe distancing measures before MOM came in. And then when MOM came in and said that, oh, um, no, you have to do this other way, as in you have to implement this other solution, that the solutions that they're trying to implement then get um, reversed, they backfire, even though the intentions are well-meaning. And I think that kind of these, these type of discussions don't really feature so much, even though they might really offer really positive solutions um, to the problems that we're facing. So, so I think that's what I'll add. Lah. Yeah. You've, you've actually touched on a whole bunch of, of really important things here, including the, the lack of an independent media and a lack of a, a really free media in Singapore, which can report on these things and investigate all these issues about, you know, systemic issues, um, where there are employers trying to make a difference, but then the MOM then comes in. I, I saw something floating around Facebook about with an employer who said he was trying to do the right thing, but then MOM came and told him to stop and then wouldn't give him a clear idea. So of course it's Facebook. I don't, you know, can't verify anything that's, that's there, but, um, you, you start to hear a lot of these and it makes a lot of sense given what we know. Um, and also I think what you've really touched on is, is this whole normative underpinning of our, of the sort of economic arrangement of our society, right? The whole sort of neoliberal idea that uh, the value of something can be measured by what you pay for it. And um, if you can exploit people to pay as little as possible, you're making the economy more effective or efficient, that you're, uh, you know, it's a good thing somehow to lower costs as much as possible because it improves the economy and therefore improves society, right? So these very sort of normative and as the past 20, 30 years has shown, very spurious links between our societal arrangements and how we look at wealth or how we look at value rather in terms of arts and literature and culture or, you know, or even how we human rights, how we treat people, um, versus the economic benefit of doing something um, and somehow conflating those things. Whereas we've, I think it's, it's become very clear that the, the way that our economy and our society in Singapore has been set up is, is very degrading and destructive to, uh, you know, to the human uh, psyche, to human spirit. And so it's not just, uh, in some ways, I think it's, it's not just workers who are exploited. Singaporeans are exploited by this whole system. Um, but then we're told by the powers that be that it's, um, <clears throat> we're better off than the workers. And so, you know, it's kind of, we kind of end up in a situation where we feel like the, that old apocryphal story about the, the man who comes home and scolds his wife and the wife who scolds the kid and the kid who kicks the cat and, you know, we, the only sort of solace we have is that there are people worse off than us. And I think that this then creates a vicious cycle where um, we somehow justify exploitation to ourselves on all these different levels. Anyway, um, so I, I just, to conclude, I just want to also pick up one other point that Jay said, which is the importance of civil society. And our government, you know, frequently dismisses or, or marginalizes civil society. But here in this crisis, it's shown that civil society has an, an, an incredibly important role to play and has higher levels of trust such that people who want to help are bypassing 
you know, formal channels and going straight to the civil society activists and the NGOs, CSOs, whom they know and can trust and can be and know are more effective and efficient. And it really shows the value that, you know, and especially in this broader crisis, the value of, of civil society and activists who have flagged up these issues for years and been ignored, right? It's so, it's so important. And the kind of contributions that you guys do are really important. I want to say uh, some things. First things uh, about the dormitory accommodation. I am wrote few articles about this and I speak out about uh, accommodation condition. So still, uh, I same things uh, saying in the society to the Singapore, to the Singaporean even government, that please change the design of the dormitory. This uh, design of dormitory is totally wrong. There are no have much ventilation. And uh, in the present situation, uh, showing us that in this one small room inside, when 12 people to 20 people, they live together, they are no place to uh, maintain social distance one meter. So this is one kind of jokes to the migrant workers. You no give a space to maintain one meter distance, but you keep saying that please maintain one meter distance. So I think this uh, COVID-19 situation showing to Singapore that have changed the design of the room design of the dormitory. This is very important. So thank you very much, uh, Michelle, Jay, and most of all, Zakir, calling us from his hospital room, from his sick bed. I really appreciate you taking uh, you know, an hour out of your time this Saturday morning to, to speak to me and to tell this story. Thank you very much. Thank you for inviting Okay. Thank Thanks. you. Thank you. That was Zakir, Jay, and Michelle. My thanks to them. We need to work towards structural and ideological change to transform the values and assumptions that govern how we treat our workers. An economic system that encourages the abuse of workers and a value system that judges the value of human life entirely by economic efficiency are not systems which I believe can or should govern how we live and how we see the world. We can be better. If you're interested in learning more about Migrant Writers of Singapore, One Bag, One Book, Daily Life in COVID-19, or any of the books or initiatives that were discussed, or would like to donate to help our brothers and sisters who are migrant workers, who are isolated and scared in their dormitories or in their employers' homes right now, please do check the show notes. New Narrative also has a number of articles on the systemic and structural issues facing low-wage migrant workers in Singapore. Do check it out. Be sure to tune in to Southeast Asia Dispatches, our fortnightly podcast series, bringing you news, interviews and commentary from around Southeast Asia. And check out our website at newnarrative.com for more stories from Southeast Asia. If you enjoy what we're doing, please do support our work by becoming a member of New Narrative at newnarrative.com. Memberships start at just 52 US dollars a year. That's just one US dollar a week. This is PJ Thumb wishing all our listeners a great week ahead. Stay safe, stay home, and be well, everyone. <laughs>